After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kaz. Today we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemus, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, 
from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. Welcome to Acts, our journey through what has been known as the fifth gospel. It's a continuation of the ministry of Jesus through his followers. He appears in the flesh before he ascends into heaven on chapter 1 and then chapter 2. His followers receive his spirit that he sends back to them and empowers them to begin to take the gospel into the Jewish world. And the gospel spreads and begins to affect Gentiles in chapter 10. And today we're in chapter 21. Paul and his company of believers have been planting churches in Europe and and, uh, Asia, the part of Asia now known as Turkey. And now they're leaving Miletus, which is in Asia Minor, a province in Europe, uh, westernmost Asia, uh, in the part of the world now known as Western Turkey. And so he has been in Miletus encouraging believers from Ephesus, where he spent a considerable amount of time encouraging them and discipling them. And chapter 21, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them, that is the Ephesian leaders who had come to Miletus, they set sail. Running a straight course, we came to Kos. That's a community, an island. And the following day to Rhodes, another island. And from there to Patera, verse 2. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Now, these aren't cruise ships. These are cargo ships. These are freighters. This is a brutal way to have to travel. Verse 3, when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left. They're heading west, so Cyprus would be north of them on their left. They're south of Cyprus. Sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. Remember that. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Remember that. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed before they got on board their ship. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. Luke is the one telling the story. He's part of Paul's ministry team. Verse 7, And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. Remember that. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. We found out Philip is still being faithful to the faith in this. He was one of the seven men appointed to help care for the Meals on Wheels program to the widows that were being neglected in Jerusalem. Uh, He was part of the seven with Stephen, who was the first martyr, Christian to be martyred. And he's the one that God used to bring the gospel to Samaria, as well as to an Ethiopian eunuch. From From there, the spirit catches him away. Here we see him again. Now he's got his own family. Now, before I get into his family, I just want to mention, notice that wherever they go, they look for disciples, and they meet with them and gather them. So I got to get on my my little soapbox here. No matter where you are, if you're on vacation, if you're on a cruise, if you're on a business trip, or if you're trying to get away from the normal routine of life, always be on the lookout for believers. 
Well, I'm on vacation. Yes, you are, but never from God, right? Recently, I read my mother's 1967 diary. In 67, I was 11 years old. We lived in Monrovia, Liberia. We had a house going in our going on in our had a church going on in our house. A house going on in our church. <laughs> Every day they had company. Even on our little vacation, we got a, a six-day getaway to the beach where a missionary had vacated his beach house for his getaway or their getaway, and we stayed in their house. Even during those days, they were having company. Sometimes the company was Americans or believers from other countries who were coming through town and found us, people we didn't even know before, and encouraged us. So you see, in your travels, going to church isn't just to do your God thing, but there's somebody there for you to encourage. There may be a pastor that you can write. It's happened to me that you can write and say, hey, I was a, I was a guest at your place, and, and this is what I observed. I want to just bless you or whatever. Who knows? Maybe you want to bring back a report to us of some things we need to do or some things you're glad we don't do. I remember visiting a church that had a muffin Nazi. Yep. They had these big muffins that they had cut in quarters, and there was a person there whose job was assigned to make sure no one got more than their quarter of a muffin. I thought, Lord, we will never do that. No, 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 no. No, you've had your quarter, you know. I better stop digressing. So here they are at Philip's house in Caesarea. This man, Philip, verse 9, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. They were young women, full of the Spirit. And as we stayed many days, notice that, seven days at the first place, one day at the next place, here many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down, Caesarea is on the coast, so it's lower in elevation than Judea, came down from Judea. And when he came to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet. So he sounds like hog tying himself, right? Uh, binds his hand and feet and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of of the Gentiles. Now, when they heard these things, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place, so here's Paul's traveling companions and his hosts. Philip may be one of them. Pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Please don't go. What's going on? Is Paul rebelling against God? Some theologians mistakenly say, Paul made a mistake. I don't think so. I'll explain. Let's just read the rest of this part of the story. When they heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? Come on. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we see saying, the will of the Lord be done. So is Paul rebellious? Is God schizophrenic? I mean, God can change his mind. Who knows? That's true. You know, Paul, I told you to go, but nah, don't go. No. God was being faithful to his promise. 
In Acts 9, when he was converted, remember he was struck blind for three days? God sent a man named Ananias to go and pray for him to receive his sight, to lay hands on him, to receive the Holy Spirit after he had baptized him. In getting Ananias to go, God had to persuade Ananias. Jesus did. Because Ananias was resistant. Hey, Lord, this guy's a bad guy. And the Lord, as if the Lord didn't know. The Lord said, go, for I have chosen him to bear my name, carry the gospel, to the Jews and the Gentiles. And I will show him the things he must suffer. So this is God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, being faithful to his promise in showing Paul in advance the things he must suffer. Now, which would you rather? Be forewarned that hard times are coming your way or be shocked and disillusioned by it? What? Paul knew he was called to go to Jerusalem, celebrate the feast, bring a report to the church leaders there. And he knew it wouldn't be easy as we'll find out next Sunday, what happens. But he wasn't being rebellious. He wasn't making a mistake. The Lord was just letting him know, just like he had told Ananias, this guy's going to suffer, and I will tell him things that will come to pass. And so he had been warned before that hard times are coming your way. And one time he avoided going to Jerusalem because there were some people on a ship that probably had ulterior motives if they saw him. And uh, what happened, we'll find out next Sunday, I'm getting way ahead of myself, is some people are going to see him who were probably from Ephesus, who knew him very well, and they told a big lie on him. All right. So back to our text. After those days, verse 15, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Mnason, sounds like an African name, Mnason, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. That's James, the brother of Jesus. And all the elders were present, the leaders of the congregation there. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He brought a report. When we have missionaries stand here and bring a report, it's biblical. Not just a tradition, it's biblical, it must be done. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord. They were happy. And then they gave their own praise report with some other news. They glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And they are all zealous for the Lord. Many means more than one, right? Actually, more than two. Probably more than three, right? Myriad means 10,000. So there's over 20,000 people, to be conservative, that are Messianic Jewish believers excited about Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, Savior of the Jews and the Gentiles. And they're also zealous for the law. They have been informed... These Jewish believers have heard some things that aren't true that concerns them. They have been informed, verse 21, about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. 
saying they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. So they're going to come and hear you speak. We're going to have you speak at our next big gathering, probably, was what he was saying. But before that happens, I've got something I'd like to ask you to do. Therefore, do what we tell you. All right, Paul, there's something we're telling you to do. We have four men who've taken a vow, probably a Nazarite vow, a form of fasting, abstaining from certain foods and beverages. Time of humbling themselves before the Lord. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Sounds like he's paying for their haircut, right? A little more than that. And that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So that was the plan. Paul, you do this, then we'll have this assembly, and then you can give the great report. Well, the plan didn't happen like that. But Paul submitted and did it. The rest of our text. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality things. As Gentile believers, we are all expected to follow Jesus, are we not? He said to his disciples before his departure, go into all the world and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach them to observe everything I commanded. So this doesn't void that. The things you read in the gospel that Jesus commands The masses, that's for us. Now, if his command is to go into such and such a town and find a donkey tied to a tree and get it and bring it here, well, that's not a command for you. If we all did that, it would be ridiculous, right? But when he said, love your enemies, do good to those who despitefully use you, bless those who curse you, pray like this, that's commands for us. So the things Jesus commanded are important. But when it comes to the commands of Moses, because we're not Jewish, this is what we're required to do. These four things. This is based in Genesis 15. You've got to be careful with Bible hopscotch. People can run, around, run all over the Bible building the case. Hear about the guy that would open the Bible and do what it said, and one day it didn't work. He opened his Bible and said, Judas went and hung himself. Oh, man, that's not good. He opened it again, go and do likewise. Oh, that's not good. Next one, whatever you do, do it quickly. Oh, man. Did it again, the Lord speaks once, yea, twice. That's a good remedy for, for, for confusion. But this is good, good biblical uh, study in that this connects to what had happened earlier in Acts 15. Now, I spoke on this over the course of three Sundays. Beware of Judaizers, beware of Gentilizers. There's two extremes in this thing. And beware of racism, which is kind of a, a, an attempt to balance the two. Hundreds of people have gone online and downloaded those things and watched them. So uh, today is kind of along those lines. We're going to speak on beware of covenant confusion. But before we get there, I just want to highlight some of the things that happen in Acts 15. 
what happened was just like happened here, Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem and gave a report on what God was doing among the Gentiles. And verse 5 says, some of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise these Gentiles and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, why is it such a big deal for circumcision to them? They didn't just make it up. Listen to this. According to Exodus 12, you cannot keep the Passover unless you have been circumcised. This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. And every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised them, then he may eat it. Verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. So through them looking through the eyes of the old covenant, they have to be. If it wasn't for the new covenant, we would have to be. Bad news, guys. All right? Numbers 9, 14. You shall have one ordinance, both for the stranger and the native of the land. Numbers 15. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before your Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. Ezekiel 44, 9. No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh. The law talked about circumcision of the heart and the flesh. Both were very important in the Old Covenant. And here in the Old Covenant, Ezekiel 44, 9, no foreigner, that's the Gentiles, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who's among the children of Israel. So these Pharisees had a point, right? They just didn't understand the prophecies concerning the new covenant that was right there in their own Bibles. So this was a great controversy. So the early church got together and said, what do we do? Peter stood up and made an appeal. He said in verse 10 of Acts 15, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall all be saved in the same manner as they. So after hearing Peter's appeal and Paul's testimony and the Pharisees' accusations, James stands up. Now keep in mind, he wasn't one of the 12 apostles during the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry, but before his public ministry, he was Jesus' younger brother, one of of four younger brothers and at least two sisters. Was Jesus a pipsqueak during those years? I don't think so. At the age of 12, he spent three days teaching leaders in the temple in Jerusalem. So with all this knowledge, called to be a teacher, you know he taught his younger siblings. So James knew what he was talking about. So he said, men and brethren, listen to me. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Verse 19, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. So if you're a Gentile believer, you really shouldn't 
have it be having bloody food and blood sausage, things like that. Let the Mormite go. It's not a big cost. It's not hard. And sexual immorality, my goodness, that covers a lot of stuff. And idolatry covers a lot of things. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now that last statement he made, people debate on why he made it, but it's not included in the letter. The letter talks about the four things, not about going to synagogue. And um, in the letter, he said, verse 24, writing to the Gentile believers, we have heard that some went out from us, that is, from this congregation in Jerusalem, and have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being with one accord, that we send these people to you with this letter, And then he said, verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Now, why am I hitting this again? It's in the text again. So we had to refer back to where it all began. James went on to say some things in his letter about the royal law. The new covenant has the royal law. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, verse 8 of chapter 2 of his letter, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. In the... uh, Complete Jewish Bible, it says, for a person who keeps the whole Torah yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of breaking them all. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, for whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point, he's guilty of breaking it all. Um, The New Living, which I love the New Living, says, for the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. And the Message Bible, I don't always recommend the Message, but it's interesting to see what it says. It said you can't pick and choose in these things, specializing in keeping one or two things in God's law and ignoring the others. So what am I saying? I'm saying that it's important that we understand as believers where we stand, that Gentiles are grafted in to Israel through Jesus, through the promise made to Abraham who lived 430 years before Moses. Abraham was promised in your seed, singular, shall all the nations of the world be blessed. Abraham was a believer. He repented. He left his idolatrous family and culture to pursue the city whose builder and maker is God, to pursue the one true God. God made a covenant with him and gave him a promise that through his seed, singular, all the nations of the world would be blessed. His first official seed that was sanctioned by God was Isaac. Miraculous birth, whom Abraham was willing to offer up as a sacrifice, believing God would either save his son through substitution or through resurrection. For three days, his son was as good as dead. And then the Lord provided a a lamb instead of Isaac. That's the gospel. God provided a lamb instead of us. We do not have to pay for our sins. 
We did not have to purchase our relationship with God through the, through the sacrifice of our children. God gave his son for us. And so the faith of saving Abraham is what saves us. The saving faith of Abraham is what saves us. So why is this such a big deal? Because the secular world does not understand the old and new covenant. And in their rebellion against the will of God for their lives, especially in the area of immorality, they will twist and spin and quote scriptures from the old covenant that we don't live under because we're Gentiles and try to do away with what we believe. The point is the old covenant has been fulfilled by the new covenant. We live by the new covenant, and the new covenant has more than enough information in it to address fornication, immorality. So, to get my point across, here's a clip from the West Wing. The Jewish Journal calls this TV show the Left Wing. Watch Gentlemen, this. the President of the United States. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. I wish I could spend more than a few minutes with you, but the polls don't close in the East for another hour. And there are plenty of election results still left to falsify. <laughs> you know, with so many people participating in the political and social debate through call-in shows, it's a good idea to be reminded every once in a while. <clears throat> it's a good idea to be reminded of the awesome impact, of the awesome impact. I'm sorry, uh, you're Dr. Jenna Jacobs, right? Yes, sir. It's good to have you here. Thank you. The awesome impact of the airwaves and how that translates into the furthering of our national discussions, but obviously also how it can... How it can... Forgive me, Dr. Jacobs. Are you an MD? A PhD. A PhD. Yes, sir. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a PhD in English literature. I'm asking because on your show, people call in for advice, and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs on your show, and I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or healthcare. I don't believe they are confused, no, sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. 
Well, you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant club. In this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. Now, if you have covenant confusion, that would rattle you. That's what I call a cheap shot. For starters, footballs are made of rubber. And tan leather is not an issue. Dead animals were the issue. And as far as mixed fibers are concerned, the law only forbid the weaving of linen with wool. It was not a matter of life and death. And some of the other things, they just put a spin on it. But that's the secular world for you. They want to shoot at us. So my endeavor today is to clear up any confusion you may have about our covenants by teaching what they both are without disrespecting the old covenant that the new covenant has uh, been provided by. Beware of covenant confusion. The notes are in your bulletin if you have one. My first point is the old covenant and its laws were given to Israel. We say Israel. Exodus 24.7 says that Moses took the book of the covenant. That's the Torah that was being written, not complete, because this is in the Torah, right? He took the book of the covenant, laws, Terms of the covenant are in the laws, and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. In Leviticus 26 46, it says, These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Leviticus 27 34, These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount So you see, James wasn't just making something up. He wasn't being rebellious or arbitrary. He was being biblical. Deuteronomy 6.1. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. Verse 3, therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you. Deuteronomy 12.1, these are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. So the old covenant was made with the children of Abraham, children in the flesh, not the grafted-in children in the spirit. My next point, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, which is a better covenant. Hebrews 8 has a lot in it about this new covenant. Verse 6 says that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. You'll see in a minute why it's better and why the promises are better. The first covenant was not without faults. For if that, verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Why was it not faultless? Because the people didn't keep it. (laughs) Their error would break it. So in the new covenant, God made a covenant with himself. Jesus was man and God. Hanging between heaven and earth makes a covenant between man and God as man and God. And then rose from the dead to ratify that covenant. The new covenant was promised. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Jeremiah said this. 
So it was promised in the old. The old covenant has, as Kevin Bentley shared last Sunday, the new covenant is in the old covenant concealed, but then in the New Testament it's revealed. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So this new covenant is for Jews and Gentiles. The gospel is something not to be ashamed of, for it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's people did not continue in that first covenant. Verse 9 of Hebrews 8, they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. He he, uh, didn't always bless them as he told them in the covenant. You don't do this, you're going to pay, you're going to suffer. In this new covenant, God promises, God promises to put his laws in his people. Verse 10, this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This comes from uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 and 32, 40 of Jeremiah. And it's echoed again in Hebrews 10, verse 16 and 17. God promises to put his laws. God's people were told to put his laws in their heart. You know, I hide your word in my heart that I may not sin against thee. And yet, the man who wrote that sinned. Why? He failed at continually hiding God's word in his heart. So the new covenant, we're not called to earn our salvation but we're called to receive the Holy Spirit who Jesus promised would lead and guide us into all truth. The Holy Spirit convicts us. When you err, you know it. Unless you've seared your conscience, which God speaks to, and even that can be healed. So the Holy Spirit is the one who puts God's laws in his heart. Now the Hasidic Jews, saying this respectfully, in honor of the command to hide God's word in their heart and put it in their minds, they, they tie uh, pouches that have God's law in them real tight with leather thongs. They're going to put it in their mind, you know, be reminded of it. And when they untie the straps, they can, you can see the red marks for quite a while before they go away to remind them of God's law. Not mocking that, not making fun of that, but I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is our helper, our comforter, that we receive by the benefit of the better covenant, the new covenant. Knowing God uh, personally, not partially, knowing God personally is part of this better covenant. Hebrews 8.11, None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, No, Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Even the backslider who's home today sipping suds in rebellion against God, knows he's not right. The Holy Spirit's at work in him or her to bring them. Some of you are in this room today because the Holy Spirit's been working on you because you know the Lord. This covenant is better because God promises mercy. The knowledge of sin comes from the law. The knowledge of mercy comes from Jesus. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Hebrews 8, 12. Check it out. Read it all in context. We just went from verse to verse to verse about this wonderful new covenant that we have been blessed with. In the new covenant, God makes the old one obsolete. Verse 13 of Hebrews 8. 
in that he says a new covenant, quote unquote, a new covenant, he has made the first covenant obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hi everyone, I'm Ron Cantor with Maoz Media. Believe it or not, Orthodox Judaism itself testifies to the validity of the sacrificial death of Yeshua. In fact, the Talmud itself indirectly confirms that Yeshua was the final sacrifice for sin. Okay, what is the Talmud? Orthodox Judaism teaches that when God gave Moses the Torah, he also gave him an oral law. And this oral law was passed down orally from generation to generation. Only in the second century was it written down or codified in what is known as the Talmud. And the Talmud itself, which in the eyes of Orthodox Jews is equal to scripture, says that God rejected the Yom Kippur sacrifices every year from 30 CE until the year 70 CE. You can find that in Tractate Yoma 39b. According to the Talmud, there were several signs by which the people would know whether or not God had received the sacrifice and forgiven their sins. First, the priests would draw lots from an urn. One of the lots had written on it the word Lehashem, or for the Lord. The other had the words Azazel. Now, if the priest drew the lot Lehashem in his right hand, that meant that God had received the sacrifice. However, if it showed up in the left hand, it meant the opposite, that God had rejected the sacrifice. We're talking about the same result over 40 years. In fact, if you just tried to flip a coin five times in a row, the same side, that's a three in 100 chance. The chances of doing that 40 times in a row is over one in one trillion. And the Talmud claims that that is exactly what happened in the first century. Another sign was that a scarlet thread was tied to the horn of the scapegoat and it would supernaturally turn white. Actually, part of this thread would be taken from the scapegoat and tied to the temple doors. This way the people would be able to see if it turned white or not. And this also did not happen during those 40 years. Now there were other signs as well, but the main point is this. According to the most respected post-Second Temple period Jewish document, the Talmud, God rejected the Yom Kippur sacrifices every single year until the temple was destroyed. However, the Talmud fails to mention, now whether through ignorance or conspiracy, I don't know, is what took place in 30 CE, the year that God began to reject the sacrifices. Of course, that was the year that Yeshua became our sacrifice. Yes, in 30 CE, the dates that the rabbis and the sages say that the God of Israel stopped receiving the Yom Kippur sacrifices, Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah, died for the sins of Israel and the nations. Thank God for Jesus. The sacrifice was accepted permanently. No longer a need to offer the other sacrifices to accept them. 
Now we can go boldly to the throne of grace, to the high priest, Jesus, who was the sacrifice, who not only has atoned our sins, which is to cover them, he redeemed them, removed them. Total expiation. Total freedom from the charges against us. Messiah completed the purpose of the Old Covenant law. So not only is Hebrews 8 interesting to read, Galatians 3 is also interesting to read. It says in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? It's death. The soul that sins shall die is what it says. Why? So that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of that promise. Verse 13, And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later after Abraham, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Abraham believed the promises of God, and it was accounted as righteousness for him. Verse 22, But the Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, that after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So is that an invitation of lawless living? No, that's an invitation to live under the lordship of Jesus. He nailed the handwriting of ordinances that was against us to his cross. They could expose our sinfulness, our imperfections. But through the Holy Spirit, leading and guiding us, writing his will in our hearts and our minds, we begin to grow spiritually. Now with that being said, the abolishing of the Old Covenant doesn't mean God has abolished the Old Covenant people. That's replacement theology. That's terrible. The gospel is to them first. We've been grafted in to them through Jesus, through the promise made to Abraham. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that when we are attacked by the secular world who would quote things from the law of Moses to try to put us down, that we would know how to communicate in love, that that was an old covenant, the terms of the old covenant, that was fulfilled by Christ. He obeyed all those perfectly and fulfilled them by dying as that perfect sacrifice, which was also a prescription of the law, so that now we could live under his authority and his lordship. And in Revelation, as well as in the Gospels, he clearly denounces fornication and commands to walk lives free of sexual immorality. So Lord, give us wisdom how to walk in love in our hostile culture, to love both Jews and Gentiles. We ask all these things, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, thank you for the new covenant. Amen. Amen.